I decided that, okay, we'll, I'll stick in some dollar and help him out by putting together a syndicate because I believed in him rather than anything else. It was my first early dip into uh, angel investing, should I say, if I should say that. And we got involved and over a couple of months, I couldn't see any traction. So I said, hey, I want to know what's happening to your business. Most of the time you'll notice that people collect the money and disappear. And uh, they will only send news which is good and never update you on bad news. Communication from startups is actually quite poor. They only communicate good news. They never communicate bad news. That's fine. But if you don't communicate for a period of time, it shows a lot of red flags. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Ramesh Raghavan. Ramesh, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. All right. So let me tell the audience a little bit about you. Ramesh is currently the vice chairman of one of the leading and oldest angel investment networks of Southeast Asia, Band C as well as an early stage venture investor and advisor in several startups. And I know, Ramesh, that we got lots of listeners that are interested in startups. So that's going to be cool. Now, he's also an advisor on risk management and traditional public market investments and alternative investments to family offices and emerging hedge funds. Ramesh previously held global leadership roles in equity, equity derivatives, risk management for Asia Pacific in sales and trading with Morgan Stanley, and Royal Bank of Scotland. Prior to his career in investment banking, he had a fast-moving consumer goods and commodity trading career with multinational corporations. Ramesh, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Sure. My, uh, I started off as an engineer before I moved into commodity trading. So I actually did my engineering, didn't like what I was doing, and decided to do a master's uh, and an MBA. I did my MBA in London Business School. Basically, I shifted my career to three different phases. The first phase was FMCG, then a bit of commodity trading. And then uh, the longest phase so far has been in the investment banking side, which, which kind of dovetails into early stage investing uh, and venture business. So that's where I am. And I like to try out new things in life. I mean, I'm always probably the uh, when I come to invest in the early stage business, I throw out all my old baggage and I try to think like a 20 year old. I think that's uh, one of the key things. And every time I meet hundreds of guys who are younger than me, I learn new things in life. So I think which is what keeps me going. And it's, it's very important, especially in, in terms of getting involved in a hundred year life. If you're all going to live for a hundred years and we keep our mind young, alert, and what we say is open to new ideas and possibilities. Some of the most exciting ideas have come from people who you never have th expected about it, or you would never have imagined that what it, that things that turn out to be stupid initially turned out to be big ideas later on in life. The most key important thing I think as an early stage investor is to be open to all kinds of possibilities and never carry your baggage when you try to assess an idea or a business.
<laughs> hey, Ramesh, I, I love that. I think I'm going to put a, a new sign at my front door. It says, leave your baggage at the door. <laughs> and uh, I love the idea, too, of ideas. I can tell you that the idea for this podcast came when I was listening. The idea for the name and kind of the theme of it came when I was listening to, I was just scrolling through and I found a podcast and I decided to listen to it. And the title of it was My Worst Interview Ever. He was interviewing guys that, you know, telling it that were podcasters to say, hey, what was your worst interview? And I just realized, wow, my worst investment ever. That's all about me. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, this is my, my worst probably in the startup space. It's about 11, 12 years back. One of my friends who was my, I would say, school slash college mate, he was a very smart guy those days. I, and uh, I said, uh, well, I would like to listen to you and see what's the story. He came up with some story which seemed interesting uh, at first. And it was not a, a substantially great new idea. It was more of an execution type of business. And this guy had a good history of, you know, being a smart student at college, uh, had worked in some large multinationals. So I decided that, okay, we'll, I'll stick in some dollar and help him out by putting together a syndicate because I believed in him rather than anything else. It was my first early dip into uh, angel investing, should I say, if I should say that. And we got involved and over a couple of months, I couldn't see any traction. So I said, hey, I want to know what's happening to your business. Most of the time you'll notice that people collect the money and disappear. And uh, they will only send news which is good and never update you on bad news. Communication from startups is actually quite poor. They only communicate good news, they never communicate bad news, that's fine. But if you don't communicate for a period of time, it shows a lot of red flags. Anyway, but since I used to speak to him on a social basis, I said, look, I have an obligation to my investor syndicate. I need to tell them what is happening. Since I took the responsibility of building a syndicate and getting you the initial seed capital, it's important to tell me if you have problems, let me know and I'll try to help you with them, sorting the problems. Anyway, the fact is that I told them, you know, we got into conversation. I told them, look, I want to see your business plan again and what you're telling your investors. And when I got the business plan again, I noticed that the first red flags which struck me was there were eight co-founders in the business. I said, dude, you know, how can you have eight co-founders? Who is the boss in this business? You can't have eight co-founders and run a business. You can have three, maybe four at the maximum, but there should be one chief. You can't have too many chiefs floating around. And then I noticed that all these co-founders had significant multinational experience, but hey, nobody was doing the job. I mean, everybody wanted to get paid, but nobody wanted to actually do anything. People were not doers. What I noticed was many of these guys come from large corporate organizations where people did stuff for them. So they had the inability to actually get down, roll your sleeves, and actually do stuff. So my first advice to him was fire... Uh, you know, you have to basically change the whole business model. The company is not making money and the significant salaries you're collecting, it has to be got down to zero. If nobody likes it, they can leave. 
it's okay because this is not a, you can't translate your corporate life to a startup life and use the same economics. It doesn't work that way because you not only have equity in the business, you can't collect the same salary. The fact that you have equity makes up for what the fact that you don't have a, much of a bigger salary. So he was very unhappy with it. I told him, look, this is the way it is going to be and I want you to do it. And after months of prodding, he managed to get rid of two of the founders, co-founders. I said, look, that's fine, but what are you guys doing? Does, do you guys have a specific key action areas that each person is responsible for? So I had to work with him, I would say, every week, nearly four or five hours of trying to figure out how to help him to a viable potential business plan so that he, I told him, don't go, to, go and meet the investors again until I tell you to meet the investors. So it took me about a month and a half to work out proper business plan as well as uh, laying out key responsibilities for each of these co-founders who are visibly very unhappy with the process. They have to do some work. So I told my friend, look, I invested in you because, you know, you were a smart guy in college, you know, we were good buddies. And, you know, you had a decent corporate life and I thought you will, you know, it's more of a trust on you that you will do what is right rather than anything which is, you know, this is running a multinational shop in a startup where people are eating investors' money as salaries. The business model doesn't work. So after a lot of prodding, we made the change. But then I noticed that, uh, and I had to teach him how to present as well, how to make a to-the-point, punchy presentation to in investors. Investors are normally smart people to a large extent. They understand the business. They'll figure out in five, 10 minutes whether it's worth, uh, worth more due diligence or not. Now, and I figured out that my friend, uh, when he was pitching, he was not the right guy to pitch. I said, I want to figure out who are other people in your founding team who have the ability to create excitement in the pitches. And he was visibly very unhappy with the process. And he said, look, it doesn't matter. All you care is about raising capital. It doesn't matter that you are the CEO and you have to pitch. So anyway, after a lot of prodding and mental anguish, I think he chose to give, <laughs> uh, introduce me to a few of the co-founders and we found someone who was capable, who's probably the best pitch person in the whole team. And after a couple of months, they were fortunate enough to raise some more capital, which gave them a bridge. But... The way they were trying to execute the plan, I could figure out there were a lot of, he would say in the meetings that, yes, we will do it, we will do it, but he'll never do it. You know, it is like saying yes to me, but actually not do it when actually it requires. So the traction was very poor. And I could figure out that it doesn't matter what I say, the red flags were loud and clear. And I was telling him, look, if you think that the current business doesn't work in the current state of the market, maybe you should pivot the business. If there is no market for what you're doing, let's pivot. It's okay. You know, you can pivot. And um, he was wedded to his idea so much that he thought that by pivoting, he was actually accepting failure. I told him, look, it is not so. Pivoting is every startup pivots every other day. Nobody starts out with a great idea thinking that, you know, things will work out all along on a straight line. So during the process of pivoting, I had to take over the responsibility of the CEO and tell the board, tell the team that, look, we have to pivot. And whoever is not interested in pivoting, you know, you can leave. It's okay, you know. And then two other co-founders left. So fortunately, from eight, we came down to 
the ideal team of uh, three or four co-founders. Then we reject the action plan, etc., and we ask, we try to make a pivot. The pivot was working briefly, but I suddenly noticed that in, during the process, I forgot to mention that we slashed their salaries by 90%. I said, this is it. You have to make the business survive. You don't collect salaries the way you collected in multinationals until you start getting revenues. This is not a business model. Entrepreneurship is not a salary collection business model. So we had to make it very clear to that guy. And anyway, I told him, look, I'm your friend. I mean, despite what happens with regard to this particular investment and business venture, we are friends. That is fine. But I want to be very frank with you on how we should go forward giving life to this business because I have a responsibility to hire the other investors who are brought in, who I brought into the deal. But anyway, as another year passed, I noticed that they were not getting any traction and uh, this guy was losing hope. And I had to get involved in a lot of psychological, you know, what do you call mentorship in terms of trying to keep this guy alive in terms of not trying to lose hope. So effectively, it became a situation where it, as if I was the CEO of the business and the rest of the people were trying to just listen to me and do what it was effectively an investor who had to take on a hands-on experience of trying to motivate these people to keep the whole business alive. You know, you could see there was no processes in terms of managing the employees, etc. I told them, like, forget everything. The most important thing is to find customers who will pay you for your business. The rest is all irrelevant in the scheme of things. And so despite, you know, then I got another co-investor of mine to help out. And we made all the right noises. And we will try to look at progress every week. And every week, there will be no progress. There'll be hundreds of excuses. We need money for this. We need money for that. You know, this guy was not, he's taking time. He didn't reply to my email. Replying to your email is not an answer. If somebody doesn't reply to an email, you just call him up and find out what's the problem, right? So these guys were acting like bureaucrats or employees, you know, senior employees of multinational organizations who actually didn't do much to, you know, in effectively, they were just sending out emails to each other. You know, and there was <laughs> very little action going on in terms of, you know, to be frank, I'll tell you, when you join large organizations, they are a machine, they run on their own. It doesn't matter who the CEO is, it runs, the franchise runs. Large part of the large organizations, whether in financial services, consumer products, etc., is they're so huge, well-established franchises that they can run without CEOs for a long period of time. They are like smooth machines. There is a system involved, the process involved. It, it kind of runs. They deteriorate over a long period of time if they are not managed properly, but you don't see the impact in the initial first two, three years. But as a startup, you are running with zero revenue, you know, zero brand value, zero of everything, and you can't have chiefs floating around without any soldiers. And their ability to manage the soldiers was very poor. So basically, uh, my business model at that point of time was, you guys get zero salaries, we pay all our salaries to the soldiers, right? And obviously, this created a lot of, uh, you know, the headache for the, for the founding team. It got real. And, sorry? It got real. Yeah, it got real. Then at some point of time, they came back to us and said, hey, we need more money. We said, look, there's no more money out here. You guys put in more money, then we will try to top it up. If you're not putting in any money, there's nobody else is going to put in any money. So this discussion went on for a few more months. 
but I, it effectively became too much for me to try to be the CEO of the firm and I was not fully involved in the business and I was not executing. And so we decided at that point of time to pull the plug. I said, look, you know, we understand that you tried something, it didn't work out, but I'm just disappointed that it, it didn't work out for the wrong reasons. If it doesn't work out for business reasons, it is okay. I have no issues with that. I mean, businesses fail for a number of reasons. But the very fact that you couldn't manage the people side of the business and you had a top-heavy business model for a startup, which effectively the soldiers were not paid and you guys were creaming the salaries, is a very bad precedent and it's very unlikely that you guys will be able to do anything going forward. So bottom line is after some time, they kind of they send a message out saying that, you know, we're just moving on, we're shutting the business. But this was my, one of my earliest angel investments. And the learning from this is, is that, you know, yes, it's, it's always nice to help out friends. And, but when you're helping out friends, uh, you should be clear with them that friendship is different and business in terms of trying to in make an investment return is written. Unless if you told me that it was a charity, that was a different story altogether, I would, we would not have bothered. But it's more also because I have a fiduciary responsibility to my co-investors because they are not investing because I am your friend. They are investing because, okay, they believe that I have done some due diligence. You know, the, I know about you and they, they trust the fact that, you know, that they believe in, that I believe in the idea, et cetera, and I'll be able to pull it through in case there are any issues. So, so, it's so would I, would I summarize that, that first learning to be business is business. And if you do it with a friend, you've got to make sure that it's being judged along the lines of business success or how would you, how would you describe the different learnings from this? The first learning is uh, be clear in mind, in your mind, whether it is a business for the sake of friendship, for the sake of friendship, or the business for the sake of business, i.e., do you expect a return from this investment or you don't expect a return from this investment? Once that is clear, and if you expect a business, a return from the investment from this business, then do all the you know, necessary due diligences before getting involved. It can take longer time, but just don't invest on the basis that he's a good friend, he was a very smart guy in college, get a great corporate life because startup life is a different kind of animal altogether. The second learning is don't invest in a business with too many co-founders. Too many chiefs are a waste of time. Three is when you look at the, the business plan, figure out that these guys are not eating the investment in terms of salaries. The investment has to go to build the business, not to pay the founders huge salaries before there are revenues or profitability. And sec third thing and fourth thing is I think uh, when people start a business, they should have a sense of urgency in them. It's not like, you know, when you go to a corporate life, every day, you know, you turn up, you swipe your card, you turn out, you swipe your card, and your salary hits the door whether you did something or not. It's, it's kind of a different model. Whereas in a startup, every day you have to do something, you have to move forward, find a customer, lower costs, whatever it is, build a network, you know, raise revenues, whatever it is. Every day, there has to be some positive objective going forward. And finally is that don't get too wedded to your business idea. Lots of business, 90% of businesses start up with an idea that doesn't work and they pivot and they try to figure out a better model for it to work. And managing, it's very important to take care of your soldiers in the business who are very important for the success of this business. You don't 
first pay the soldiers, then pay yourself. Don't pay yourself first and leave the soldiers in the air. And finally, I think the most important thing is that the ability to take an advice and execute the advice is very important. Got it. If you execute it and you say that it didn't work out for valid business reasons, people understand. But you should not give reasons which are you know flimsy. I mean, most of the people will say, I didn't have the money, so I couldn't... I was not able to get the deal done or whatever it is, right? Don't put your excuses on lack of capital or, you know, lack of, uh, what do you say, a feedback from the investor mm. or he didn't get back. You are the dog. You have to be like a hungry dog. When you are a startup, you are a hungry dog. You don't care what it is. You have to go after people. People don't come to you. When you work for a large multinational, people come to you. When you are a startup, you go to the people. So that people kind of forget this kind of fatality. And I think it's always better to have a good mix of, in the team, a good mix of people with domain experts with specific responsibilities for what they're in the team for. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people want to hang out in the garb of co-founders trying to say that we are doing this, we are doing that. We actually don't know what they do. But uh, if you can identify the roles identify the action plan, identify the outcomes, and then actually go with the business, then you'll have a much better chance of doing something more, much more credible. Fantastic. Um, that's probably the important, most important thing. The, the bottom line is that when you're a startup, as I said earlier in my initial introduction, leave your baggage of what you did before and be open to new ideas, roll up your sleeves, and do what needs to be done to get the business off the ground. Because nobody is coming here to help you. You have to go to the people to help yourself. Yep. Got it. Fantastic. Well, I think I can speak for the audience, and I'm certainly speaking for myself. Ramesh, I want you to be my startup advisor. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people wouldn't get involved, and they would just say, look, you better turn this around or crash it. You know, and for you to get involved is also, whether that was a good decision or a bad decision, I appreciate your desire to help. I'm just going to talk about some takeaways from what I got from it. There's so many lessons and you've gone through them quite eloquently. So I think I'm only going to hit on to two things. First one, there's six common mistakes that come up in these podcasts that I've you know, interviewed and the people I've talked to. The first one is failed to do their own research. The second one is failed to properly assess and manage risk. The third one is being driven by emotion or flawed thinking. The fourth one is misplaced trust. The fifth one is failed to monitor their investment. And number six gets a category all by itself, and that is invested in a startup company. (laughs) And I would say, you know, we're looking at probably misplaced trust. You put trust in somebody that probably shouldn't have gotten that trust for what you were wanting from him, for instance, in this case, business, to to make a successful startup. The second uh, one is number six. When you invest in a startup, it is such a high-risk thing. And in fact, you know, I think the best advice as far as investing in startups for the listeners is if if you're getting really excited about investing in a startup, I'd highly recommend that you invest in 10 startups. The point being, you know, I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's such a high risk thing. So that's uh, the first thing is I just highlight the idea of misplaced trust. I have a business, I I still call it a startup, even though it's 23 years old, which is called Coffee Works in Bangkok, that 
was mm. co-founded and my best friend, uh, Dale, Dale runs the company, but we've been equal partners from day one. And, um, mm. I trusted Dale because he was a friend and I knew him for many years. We grew up outside of Cleveland in little Hudson, Ohio. And he came to Thailand and saw me and said, Hey, why don't we start a coffee business? We had no idea what we were doing. We were 28 years old and we just did it. And the one thing is that we started the business before the 1997 crisis, which was the epicenter of that was, of course, Bangkok, Thailand. And yeah. um, we went through a brutal, brutal, brutal time for the first, let's say, five years of our business. But I learned through those five years by observing Dale that I could trust him, that he would never give up, that he would fight, he would pivot, but he would only give up, you know, if it just said, this doesn't, isn't going to work. But we always thought, it's coffee, come on. We're not trying to invent some new thing. So he earned my trust to an extreme and I've been behind him all of those years and I think we've both earned each other's trust. So, you know, it doesn't always work with friends. It can work with friends. It doesn't always work with family. It can work with family, but misplaced trust. Uh, now, I just wanna, now that I've introduced a Dale to you, I just wanna tell you a, a quick story, Ramesh, about Dale. He's a very, sometimes he can be quite funny. And uh, we were at the factory many years ago and there was a period of time in 1998 that we actually, I lost my job as an investment banker and we moved into the factory because we had to do exactly what you said was we had to cut the costs. And I read a great mm -hmm. book by a guy named Gary Sutton called The Turnaround or Turnaround. And it's, it was really a great book. And as he explained, the only thing you truly can control right now is your costs today. And he taught me a lot about that. And we did a lot of cost cutting, but we were laughing because we had hired a bunch of different people that had worked in big companies and then they came and worked in our company and then they crashed and burned. And it was mm. exactly because, as you say, in a large company, you know, you can call up the HR department and say, hey, I need some new staff. Can you help me get, line up some interviews? And you can call up the accounting department and go, I don't understand about this. Can you help me with this? Uh, you can call up the marketing and say, can you guys make a little jingle and a little ad for me? And um, Dale always joked that when people would call to the factory, he would answer the phone and they'd say, um, can I speak to the accounting department? And he'd say, uh, one moment, please. Yes, this is the accounting department. And when someone would say, can I, can I speak with production department? He'd say, uh, one moment, please. Yes, this is the production department. <laughs> and when he said, can I speak with, the, with, with Dale? Yes, this is Dale. <laughs> and when you're doing small business, it is simply no understatement that you must do everything. And I think for a lot of people that are listening to the show, if you're thinking about going in and doing business, and I've heard some people say this, and it's just like shocking, is that they say, I want to have my own business so I can have more free time. <laughs> you're going to be overwhelmed and you're going to have to do many, many things that you never, ever, ever thought that you'd be doing. Um, so those are kind of my two takeaways, the misplaced trust and the idea that we have to do it all as a startup. And so is there anything you'd add to that? I think I mean, as, as far as early stage investing is concerned, if people are interested in startups, uh, my belief is, and fortunately, the, the probability of success is higher only if you create your S&P 500 of startups. You need to have at least 20 to 30 companies minimum, at the minimum, to have any probability of a big winner. When I say big winner, I mean to get returns which are better than public markets. You know, it's, it's much easier to make risk-adjusted 10% in dollar terms returns in public markets over the long term compounded compared to a startup business unless you have very reasonable portfolio of companies. The bigger the portfolio, the higher is your probability of success. 
Got so it. anybody, if you think that you, you're done with 10, very unlikely, all 10 could fail. You know, the probability of success, as you're aware, in startup investing is less than 5%. And especially in terms of returns, 5% of the companies have to generate enough returns to take care of the rest of the failures. So unless you are into startup investing for other reasons, such as learning new things in life, being part of next wave of uh, technology or businesses, there's something more than pure economic returns. It's okay. I mean, if you're going to have economic returns as one of the primary considerations, then you have to build your S&P 500. Otherwise, it may not work. Got it. And now I want to take us back to the point when you put your money into this startup. And I want to challenge you to give us one thing, just one. So let me ask you this question. Based on what you learned from this story that you've told us, and what you've continued to learn in the whole space of startup investing and advising, what one action, one action, would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the exact same fate that you got trapped into? I think one action I would say is that never have a business more than three co-founders and each with specific, clear, identifiable action responsibilities for what they will bring to the table. And the equity should be split based on what they bring to the table rather than what the pure capital that they put in. Got it. That goes to the two uh, lessons, the first two lessons that you talked about, about make sure that it's a clear business and a clear business plan and also make sure there's not too many co-founders. All right, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? That's a tough one. I think my number one goal is to uh, figure out an exit for some of the investments that I have so that I can convert locked up capital to liquid capital for better uses in the future. Got it. That's always a challenge and that's part of what makes startup investing so challenging is it's so exciting. The entry into it can be very exciting. The exit can be hard, to, visual, hard to capture, hard to visualize. So, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Ramesh, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Thanks, Andrew. I would just say that be bold. And the first step in making money is to actually lose some money. So don't worry about losing money. <laughs> you got to, as my mom always said, you win some and you lose some. Just ensure that you win more than you lose. <laughs> exactly. Not necessarily more times, but more money. More money. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside. <laughs>